Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. This week, I'm talking to one of my favorite design writers, Allison Arieff. Allison is the editorial director of Spur and is a columnist for the New York Times, where she writes about architecture, design, and cities. Before that, she was the editor-at-large for both Good and Sunset magazines and was the editor-in-chief of Dwell. I've been a big fan of Allison's writing, literally going all the way back to her time at Dwell when I subscribed to that magazine as a high school student as I was first getting interested in design and and architecture. But I've really enjoyed her recent work, especially as her gaze has started to expand and she started to write about things like housing and autonomous vehicles and the Internet of Things through the lens of design and through kind of the perspective of the designer. In this episode, Allison and I talk about how she wanted to be a writer since she was a child and how she started writing about design specifically. We also talk about the evolution of her subject matter and how her her gaze has sort of expanded. And we talk about her work at Spur, which is this really fascinating kind of policy think tank around building better cities. Remember, if you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year to receive an exclusive monthly newsletter with additional content and episode previews. These memberships help the ongoing production of the podcast, and I just really appreciate all of your support and hope that you enjoy this conversation with Allison Arieff. start these interviews kind of asking about people's background and kind of how they got interested in design. And as I was researching you and preparing for this, I came across an interview that you had given a couple years ago, where you mentioned that when you were in eighth grade, you (laughs) wrote an essay about wanting to be editor of Time magazine. Uh, And so if that's okay, I would love to start there and then we'll just kind of move forward from there it's a little further back (laughs) than I normally go but I I'm curious what what you were interested in when you were in eighth grade or why that was a the kind of career or the job that you wanted sure um yeah and then we will not have to go all the years uh in between because that would take us all day right um you know a couple things It's hard to imagine in the world that we're living in now, but um, when I was in eighth grade, which was, um, you know, in prehistoric times, there weren't so many magazines and like Time and Newsweek were just like, that's what you had in your house. At least that's what was in my house. And that was a sign that you were sort of like, well read and like, you know, what was going on. And so we had those. And so I always felt that that was just this important thing that we had. Also, my... um, my aunt and uncle uh, were both journalists and they were based in DC and they were, and still are. It's funny. My daughter is actually just flew to New York to spend the week with them. Oh, nice. Even 12 year olds think they're amazing. (laughs) And when I was 12, I thought they were amazing and I wanted to be just like them. And I still want to be just like them. (laughs) They just had this this life that just seemed great to me. And they've, (laughs) kind of been this model and that's what they did for a living also i just really love to write and i had amazing an amazing english teacher miss johnstone when i wrote that essay i completely remember it and that's to do was i was doing a lot of uh ballet at that time and believe it or not time magazine had a full-time dance critic and so i thought too that 
that that was some of the different world. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that was something that I could do that if I didn't become a dancer, I could write about it. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's how that all that happened. But yeah, it wasn't a direct route, but I was pretty, felt pretty sure that's yeah. where I wanted to go. Yeah, because I was going to ask, it's so interesting. Um, and I was similar in that I, uh, maybe not exactly similar, but I've, as I look back on my own childhood, I realize how much stuff I did was graphic design before I knew what graphic design was. And it took me uh, kind of growing up to figure out that was the thing that I had always been doing. Uh, yeah. And so I kind of know, I know what you're talking about of kind of, you know, being young like that and seeing <laughs> these careers that you want. But so you had, you knew what your, um, what a writer was it wasn't just that these magazines were there but you kind of understood that that world at that age too i mean i don't think i knew sort of the logistics right, of it because right, right. you know i i definitely remember and i tell my uncle this now and he kind of groans but <laughs> i remember having a conversation with my uncle in college when i was in college that i wanted to um go down this path and he was like oh god it's such a rough you know it's such a rough path you know yeah. you don't want to do it and and um and I did I mean I didn't end up majoring in journalism or anything like that not because he said that but just he was kind of like ah oh, whatever yeah. this this is so hard little did he know like how hard it would be <laughs> yeah well that was my next question is because you didn't end up studying journalism or, or writing you studied history or art history I studied history, but sort of not intentional. That's why, I mean, this is maybe too much of a tangent, but um, I'm always it. a little um, alarmed when, you know, graduating high school seniors have it all laid out when they're yeah. 17. Yeah. You know, I'm going to be pre-med, I'm going to do this and the other thing. It's like, I loved books and writing, and so I majored in English, and I went to UCLA, and I hated all the English classes mm. I had at UCLA. It was like Canterbury Tales and just... I just, just didn't like it. Um, and I took a history class that I loved. And so I became a history major. And that's, that's frankly, like, the deep background of how I became a history major and ended up um, really loving history and couldn't mm. believe, you know, the way it was taught versus the way it had been taught in high school. Like, oh, I would have actually embraced this a lot earlier. Um, I feel the same now with so many subjects, you know, from <laughs> My daughter, who's 12, they have these amazing, not so much in school, but like the available books that kids can learn about subjects yeah. and are just so much more vivid than they were um, yeah. back then. But uh, but yeah, so I was a history major with no idea of what one might actually do with that. But <laughs> college was a little bit, college was a little bit more about liberal arts mm -hmm. when I was in school and and it there was less though certainly there were some peers of mine that were like I'm getting a business degree so I can get a job that's just not where my brain was at right so I wasn't really worrying about it I wasn't really thinking that much about what the job was going to be and then as now I have to say I, I even a, like a journalism degree felt really specialized to mm -hmm. me and still does to be quite honest you know I'm I'm always a little bit wary of um a degree that only allowed that's really preparing you for a specific job yeah so how i you know i don't like like you mentioned earlier i don't want to spend all of our time talking about you know your background or this early part of your career but i am curious yeah. kind of after you finished that degree what did you do right away <laughs> was it related to 
history or, or, or <laughs> how, how did you come? Maybe the, maybe the better question to kind of pull the conversation forward is how sure. did that lead you back to writing? Yeah, I'll give you the really accelerated version. Okay. So the, uh, the, the very accelerated version is, uh, no, I did not become a historian, but I did feel like I wanted to, um, I felt like I wanted to work in art because I was doing a lot of cultural history. I worked mm. at galleries. I went back to get my master's degree in art history. Um, then I was like, academia is cool. I'm going to get a PhD. So I moved to New York to, to uh do my PhD, realized I didn't want to do my PhD and became the world's oldest editorial assistant, maybe not, <laughs> but it felt like it, at, um, yeah. at 28 at Random House and just had a really, really great mentor at Random House learning how to edit mm. and kind of had an accelerated publishing career at that moment um, that ultimately got me a job at Dwell just probably like five years after I started working in publishing and I'd never, I'd never written the only work I had published when I got hired at dwell was academic articles. And in fact, the first article that I wrote for dwell, I wrote with footnotes because I didn't know how to. (laughs) (laughs) That is amazing. I love that. It was not published with footnotes, but it was, it was this huge. Oh man. I don't know how to do this. I've only ever written this way. Yeah. And um, my my you know first boss at Dwell, Carrie Jacob, she was like, "Yeah, you can't publish an article." <laughs> so, uh, so it was like taking the training wheels off, and yeah. that just launched me into um, writing differently. And so I was writing and editing at Dwell based on you know book publishing experience and academic writing, and you know I think part of the success of Dwell magazine was that so many of us really had no prior magazine experience and we're mm-hmm. just we weren't bogged down with um how it was supposed to be done yeah how did you how I've talked to a couple Dwell people I talked to Carrie I talked to um Sarah Rich uh um, who was there for who, for a who bit? was my intern actually. oh oh perfect yeah. I didn't I didn't know I it's hard for me to figure out the overlap of people so I didn't I don't know who is there at the same time um how but it's interesting to me how a lot of a lot of those people had little or no background in writing about design sometimes also what was your how did you get that job or what what was it about that job that kind of interested you so um Carrie was hired and I was basically the first person she hired. Okay. So she was editor in chief and I was senior, I was senior editor. And then she left after what year and a half, two years. Yeah. And then I became editor in chief. So I had been working at Chronicle books, doing a lot of popular culture projects. Okay. I did a book on Airstream trailers. Um, I did something on hat show print, you know, the letterpress yeah. Yeah. Um, in Nashville. And so I basically got hired, I think, on the, um, the book wasn't even out yet, but on the, um, sort of like the printouts for the Airstream trailer book. And okay. I think Carrie's, Carrie's feeling was like, well, she can put this together. <laughs> she can, you know, she can put this other stuff together. Um, and so that's how I got hired. And then, um, through a friend of mine, I found Jeanette who became our creative director and I hired Sean Hazen, who was, oh, yeah. uh, who, I worked with at Chronicle and so brought him over to dwell. And, and so, and I still work with him today. Uh, so yeah, people came from, yeah, we were just kind of picking interesting people. We weren't too caught up in, in how deep yeah. of design 
knowledge they had, uh, which I think was good. That said, I, I do think in retrospect that um, Dwell was a lot of in, inside baseball in terms of writing. Like we assumed a lot of design mm-hmm. knowledge on mm-hmm. the part of the reader, which I, I might have going from there to the New York Times where my editor would ask, who are the Eameses? Why have you oh. just... <laughs> and so it's it was like a real awakening for me. Oh, yeah. I I was kind of not too cognizant of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. It's funny that you say that. And this is a little bit... Um, I've told versions of this story to other people that I've talked to, but you saying that, uh, I, I have to say that I kind of came to design or, or really kind of realized that design and graphic design specifically was the thing I was interested in when I was about a sophomore or junior in high school. And this is the early, this was the early 2000s, like 2003, 2004, 2005, somewhere in there. And it was right at the height of blogging. And so sites like Design Observer and Speak Up were very kind of fundamental to my very early design education. Mm-hmm. But the first magazine that I subscribed to as this 14 or 15 year old kid was dwell was like like early dwell issues that I would get delivered to to my house and I read them cover to cover. And so I, I actually kind of appreciated that inside baseball because it let me feel like I was a part of something and gave me this kind of very rich education that when I got to college, I knew all about design history. I knew all of these architects and designers, but I didn't know how to do any of it. <laughs> um, yeah. And so so you saying that is actually like bringing back all these memories of sitting in my room as a kid, <laughs> reading these and like seeing the Eames names and then looking them up and that sort of thing. Hey, that's lovely and also makes me feel so old. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but that's okay. um, I'm, curi- I'm curious though, you know, about kind of not having that design background or being new to design it's interesting now to to think back on that that you've basically kind of stuck to that beat I think you know your writing about design has evolved a lot and your subjects within the larger world of design have changed a lot but what was it about that world or that subject matter that really grabbed you well there's a there's a few that there's a few things there. Um, one, even though I wasn't sort of studying design, there's a lot that I kind of realized in retrospect as as one does. Mm-hmm. Um, I took a seminar at UCLA with Thomas Hines when I was mm-hmm. an undergraduate, and it was the culture of Los Angeles. And, okay. you know, I didn't know. I was 18 years old, whatever, 19. I didn't really know anything. And one day he piled us into a van and took us to the Eames house mm, and nice. the Kaufman house and, and all these things. And I was like, well, this is cool. But I, I didn't – it affected me, but it didn't affect me that deeply. I mean, I remember being really kind of impressed with all of it. And I was sitting at my desk at Dwell years later going, oh, yeah, I actually went to all – see all this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like I was, I was absorbing all of it. You know, I grew up when you had Eames furniture and it wasn't fancy. It was just stuff that you had. Right, right. You know, and teller plates. And my mom um, was in the arts and, and very creative and had, we had Marameco and all this stuff in oh, our house. And I just, it just was what people had as right. far as I was concerned. And it was only later that I was like, oh, I've actually had this stuff kind of around. And, and was coming to realize that that had been the case. Uh, I would also say that we had, um, it's called a very culture rich household. My dad was and is an opera fanatic. You know, mm. I was doing ballet 20 hours a week. Um, it was, we just had this yeah. 
like, like that was very much a part of my, I was very fortunate to just sort of grow up with all of that. Um, also, even though um, the initial book publishing stuff that I was doing in New York was not so design centric, by the time I got to Chronicle Books, and um, I mean, I'll tell the, the quick heartwarming story. Um, I, I got reacquainted with an old friend of mine, um, Brian Burkhart, who was doing his uh, second de degree in design at, mm. uh, at California College of Art. And he had done this Airstream prototype for a book design class. Okay. And I said, oh, this looks really great. I bet I could sell this at Chronicle. Mm. Um, and so... Um, he and I did that book, short story, we got married. <laughs> I was all of a sudden like married to a graphic designer. Yeah. Definitely became like a bigger and bigger uh, part of my life. My friends were designers, you know, this was just like, right. like much became my life. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. That's amazing. <laughs> so did you, I, um, you know, to kind of now talk about this being a bigger and bigger part of your life, the other thing that's been interesting to me about your career, and this has become a theme on the podcast, I recently talked to Alyssa Walker also, mm -hmm. and, and she and I talked about this, in that her interest in design, there's this kind of scaling up of her subject matter. And I think yours mm -hmm. is the same way, in that, uh, you know, you were kind of writing about design objects, you were writing about, um, you know, at Dwell, writing about kind of homes and architecture. Now a lot of your writing is about cities and urbanism, and even things like technology and the internet of things and infrastructure. And I'm, I guess I have kind of two questions around that that may or may not be related. I'm interested in if that was kind of a conscious decision on your part or kind of if that is even something that you think about that kind of, th that kind of increasing scale of design. And then the, the second part, which, you know, maybe the bigger part of the question is, is that, do you think that's indicative some way of kind of how design is portrayed in culture or designs kind of increasing currency in the world? You know what I, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll start with the first one. Um, and, and I'll just be honest. So, you know, when you, I was at dwell for almost seven years and after a while, I was like, if I have to write another one of these home <laughs> stories about yeah. you know, Jim and Susan never thought they'd find their dream home. You know, it just, it was beginning to feel a little bit like Mad Libs. Yeah. You know, like, like I had exhausted I had exhausted the form. Right. And, you know, the day I left, well, I got a call from the New York Times asking me to do this design column. Mm. And it was basically like, uh, explain to us why we should care. Like, why design is important. Yeah. And that column, which I'm actually still quite fond of, I think that was 2007 that okay. I wrote that, um, that talks about everything from the air on chair to the crappy cup holder in my car yep. to this really horrible parking sign on the street that you need like a master's degree to decipher like when you couldn't, couldn't park there. <laughs> and, and so basically just everything, just to kind of make the point that, you know, everything that's in your life, someone designed it. Right. So I think that that kind of set me off on this path of, of, um, getting more curious. Then when I started to work at IDEO, all of my projects were about the built environment, whether it was senior housing or low income housing or suburban housing. And, and so I started to think of different scale. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like all of these things, both me just being like a very curious and frankly impatient person. <laughs> what <laughs> yeah. else? What else? Um, so it expanded both by, um, 
you know, internally and externally. Okay. And then this opportunity at Spur came along and I'd been thinking about cities and, and sort of that seemed to make sense. And, and all the technology stuff that I've been doing, um, is both an interest and also just this super vexing yeah. <laughs> for me yeah. as, as anyone can see who's, who's reading what I'm writing about, like technology is not solving our problems. Right. You know, and, and I feel like people are talking about that more now, but I have to say when I first started writing some of this stuff, um, I didn't feel like people were writing about that. Yeah. I think that people were looking at me like I was a crazy person. Why are you so negative? Why are you so pessimistic? And I'd be um, like, well, I'm not seeing what people are seeing. Yeah. One of my favorite, one of my yeah. favorite pieces that you wrote uh, recently w was in, in the New York times. And it was, I think the title of it was solving all the wrong problems. Yeah. And yeah. that, that was just a couple years ago. And even then I feel like that was kind of, ahead of its time in a way. I think now people are coming around to that idea, but that was what, 2015 or so probably. Yeah. I feel like I wrote that and I was like, why are you not seeing this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think some people were like, Oh my God, you're so pessimistic, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Oh my God, what is wrong with everybody? Like, why are they not seeing that this is happening? And, and you know, once it got past the point where I honestly can't tell, if stuff is made up or not anymore, <laughs> yeah. like, like over and over again, I'm just like, wait, is this real? Yeah. I don't know if it's real. And you know, there's just too many examples. So yeah, the solving all the wrong problems thing, I think um, for me was, a was obviously a big, um, a big moment in, in my thinking. And I try, I, I like to say I'm not pessimistic, but I'm pragmatic. Like I want to mm. see like, I, I write this stuff not because I hate all of it. I don't want to be Andy Rooney, but because I care. Like I want people to right. to say, is it is this really solving a problem? Right. Or or is it like this uh, consulting gig I had a couple weeks ago where they definitely invited me and a few other people to yeah. look at um, a solution in search of a problem? Like we've we have this thing, this robotic capability thing. And we don't really have anything to do with it. So what if we did the X, Y, or Z? And in fact, all of the X, Y, and Z were all terrible. Right. But they had this thing and they just wanted, and I get it. But I also see that um, there's just so much solutionism going on. Like we have this solution. Right. You know, as opposed to, hey, uh, here's here's a million things that are wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. one of, like all the Internet of Things stuff, which I've also written about. Yeah. Um, why someone would have an Alexa or any of that stuff in their house, I, I don't know. But you know, like if you actually sat down with someone inside their house and said, what are the things that are really your pain points in your house? Like, what what would you love technology to help you do? It's none of the things right, right. that I do things do. It's none of them. You know, I always say, like, until I can empty my dishwasher, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not interested. And, and that's not, like, we seem a far, a far way off. Yeah. 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 I love, uh, you know, just another side note, your internet of things, uh, pieces are, are uh, another one of my favorites. I, when I was in grad school, I wrote a, a paper in one of my classes about all of the problems with the internet of things. And I think I, I quoted you a couple times in, <laughs> in that paper, you mentioned spur in your last answer. And I want to come back to that, but I have one more question about the New York times, yeah. uh, and kind of writing for the New York times, or maybe one and a half questions. Um, you know, thinking about kind of writing there versus dwell and talking about dwell being sort of inside baseball and, 
I'm not I'm not totally sure who who the readers of Dwell were or are, but I imagine that they're not always the same readers of the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about you know, how you kind of think about audience and writing in the New York Times where people might not have any relationship to design that they're aware of, how you mm-hmm. think about that and kind of writing about this in a way that anybody can understand. Yeah, I mean, because I write about all kinds of crazy things for the Times, and <laughs> yeah. my editor is definitely not a design guy, so he will always be like, what? <laughs> what, what is this? Do people u- really use the word stakeholders? Yes, unfortunately. <laughs> um, I, I always assume I'm needing to explain it to um, a relative or mm. you know, someone on the street, and you know, an interesting connection to Spurs you know, I, I spend a lot of time with like deep policy work that I'm then trying to make understandable for more people. And I'm always kind of pushing my colleagues, like, you can't use these words, you know, you can't keep saying multimodal and fine grained circulation. These are awful mm. these are awful, awful words that people are just gonna shut down and they do shut down. And so, um, you know, I come from a grad school background, which is where I did my first real writing when and probably still is, frankly, in, in most of academia, where um, the most dense critical theory, Foucault, all that stuff was just, that's how you showed off, and that's yeah. how you showed you were smart. And that is absolutely not what I'm interested yeah. in. Right yeah, now. Like, like I, I read I read stuff that I wrote in graduate school, and I, I kind of want to kill myself. It's just, <laughs> I mean, it was it was what I was supposed to do, but right. that's, not, that's not how I want to communicate. And so it's not that I'm dumbing it down, but I am really just trying to be super, super clear because I want, because I want, I don't want design to be this elitist thing. I want people to understand that. Right. And this is my preachy part of this talk. The way your neighborhood is designed is really important. And you know, you're, what you're sacrificing with internet of things is really important. And I want, I want people to think about these things and be aware of them. And so it does, it does no service to my ideas to, to not be as clear as possible. Yeah. I mean, and that's what I, that's what I love about your work. And that was so much of what I was interested in when I was in grad schools. I felt like so much of the design writing that was really interesting was kind of, bogged down by academia in a lot of ways uh you know people who are kind of really raising interesting questions about design and what it can do in the world and then it because it came from academia just never left that and i was always very curious about people like yourself or or people you know like like Alyssa or, or alexandra lang who are kind of writing about this very intelligently but to people who have no relationship to it at all and it's not i i what you said was really interesting where it's not dumbing it down um but it's it's i don't i don't know the way you said it i really i like that a lot where it's it's different than dumbing it down uh i i think that's interesting i don't know if i have a question there other than that um, yeah no I, I think it's it's easy to use um <laughs> i don't know why i always remember this but i had um a classmate when I did a junior year abroad um, and every time she wrote a paper, this was so long ago that we wrote our papers in longhand. Mm. We yeah. wrote this program and she would always start her papers by using the phrase, 
diametrically opposed yet inextricably intertwined. <laughs> she felt that it sounded, it, it made her sound smart. And it probably did, but she used it in every paper, irrespective of what the the paper was. And I always think of that, and I've probably used that also. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I could probably bust myself right now just with a quick um, Google search, but it always kind of cracked me up that, that you would just kind of pick the words. Right. And, and I think in a way, I mean, I could be... I could be super verbose and, and, and use all of this jargon, but anytime, um, you know, anytime you go to a meeting in a field that's slightly different than your own and you begin to hear the acronyms and the, the, the words, the different mm-hmm. words, start. it's like I went to, um, I went to two uh, autonomous vehicles. I spoke at two autonomous vehicles events in the last two weeks. Oh, interesting. One was, one was a more kind of government agency ish, or you know thing and the other was a startup thing and it was like different completely different right presentation acronyms everything um my first few months at spur i was in such acronym hell i was just like i have no idea like well, i just don't know what's <laughs> happening and so i i'm i'm really sensitive to that and though i'm sure i'm guilty of of making those same mistakes i i also try and be like oh god you know you just have to assume that people people don't know what these things are. Yeah. Well, that was what you just, you started answering my next question. Cause I was really curious how that relates to your work with Spur. And so I have two questions. One, I think I would love if you just kind of describe what Spur is and kind of what your work there is. Mm-hmm. And then this, the second part, and I, I, you can kind of like build these onto each other, I think is then, you know, how it's different to write, basically for a you know an organization about policy versus writing about writing at a place like the new york times where you're um you know maybe more of a a journalist or an opinion columnist you know what i mean sure well um, so the first question spur is an urban planning and policy think tank and we were started 100 years ago in san francisco after the earthquake Mm. oh i didn't know that i didn't realize it was that long ago that's very long ago to uh, try and advocate for getting more housing built. So, right. you know, this is a city with a long history of housing crunches. Mm-hmm. Um, we opened in San Jose and Oakland as well in the last few years. So Spur works on transportation, housing, sustainability and resilience policy, urban design, regional planning, um, and has policy directors in each of those areas and works with, um, cities, municipalities, sometimes the private sector, um, often the government, um, either on a particular problem or sort of a broader issue. I mean, I did a policy report getting on a year ago, and I guess now on rethinking the corporate campus, which was trying to get um, companies and cities to kind of think better about locational decisions and decisions about form. Uh, One of the things we kind of predicted or at least saw coming in that report was that companies were going to start not locating people in the Bay Area anymore and and Mm -hmm. sort of opening satellite offices and that sort of thing because of the expense. And and that's certainly happening. Um, You know, we're a more kind of design specific thing that we're working on is there are 28 transit agencies in the Bay Area and there is not a single transit map. So if you need to take one system and shift to another one you're on two maps and there's no continuity and it's um it's actually a really hard system to navigate and we send interns on this kind of 
14-hour ride around the Bay Area to try and navigate their way, um, which is sort of cruel, but I think also really interesting. So we're going to try to do this sort of transit map of the Bay Area. We do a ton of public programming at Spur, too, so we have a very huge public education uh, component Mm. kind of uh, interest and educate people about these issues. So my work there is kind of... In a way, it's a version of my New York Times work insofar as I want to make all these policy right. issues understandable to a larger public mm-hmm. and get them to care and understand that, um, you know, where BART goes is really important to them, um, how housing policy does actually affect their housing security, stuff like that. So a lot of that is is finding new and more interesting ways to, to write about those issues. To, we have a magazine, which is, um, you know, designed by Sean, who uh, used to work with the Dwell. Uh, so very strong. You know, we did a rebrand of all the, um, anything that comes out from business cards to the website and, and made oh, sure yeah. that graphically everything's very strong. The programs kind of run the gamut, run the gamut of uh, Pachacacha to Denser, panels and it's very much um just trying to be clear and authoritative you know in, in, right. in pointing the way to these solutions um it's the the difference between that and the the writing i do for the times is 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 easily explained in that i i do write for the opinion section so it is me um often ranting <laughs> i can't, can't write that way for spur you know i have to be a, a diplomat and and oh, it's not our opinion. It's it's about you know this is this is good policy and, and, and here's why. It's a very it's a very different. Um, it's a different approach. Is the process for writing between those two differently? Because definitely, you know, it's not just opinion versus this is this is policy or backed by facts, but it's also you're representing the organization. You're kind of promoting Spur and the policies that it's trying to put forth. What is that? kind of process like how are the processes between those different everything from kind of research and subject matter all the way out to the actual craft of writing sure well very different one i mean i have to say i do a lot of different writing you know i i write for other publications that aren't necessarily opinion pieces um a big piece for the arts and leisure section of the times on women architects and i will say it's always a relief to not be doing an opinion piece. <laughs> yeah. Much less loaded, right? So right. if someone just gives me an assignment and I, I usually don't have the same kind of emotional connection or, you know, it's it's not what I think about it. It's just like, please report on this. That's way easier. Mm-hmm. Psychically, you know? Right. I, there's each, each New York Times piece is like, all right. <laughs> Here you go, like come and get me. And even if that doesn't happen, I always assume that's what's going to happen. So it's it's always, you know, it's like a psychological thing that I have to get through. Yeah. Uh, that said, I will sometimes write a Times piece in an hour if I'm particularly riled up by something. I mean, I think the oh, wow. story I read at Hyperloop a few years ago is a perfect oh, yeah. example. Yeah. Me just sitting somewhere going, what's going on? <laughs> um, I wrote that story at the airport, you know, before my plane left. And oh, I interesting. Spit the whole thing out because I just had a lot to say. Um, if I'm doing policy stuff, like I wrote a piece on uh, the gas tax repeal, which is this really stupid thing on the ballot this year to mm. repeal the gas tax in California, which would effectively cease funding for. Um, all infrastructure, not all, but many infrastructure improvements in an already embattled state. And, you know, that's pretty easy to do. It's, it's, it's not hard 
hopefully for me to convince a number of people the reasons why that's bad. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I did a little research and and, um, just wanted to be as clear as possible. Like, this is what's happening. This is the real motivation. These are the reasons why you shouldn't support that. So, um, so I would say there's that. I think would also a lot of the work, like the corporate campus report, um, you don't just submit, you don't just put policy out in the world. Uh, Spurs process is very much about convening and talking and talking to more people and talking to more people and, and, and getting consensus and, and, you know, just as like community meetings are about bringing everyone along. I would say that the process of writing is very much about that there, you know, so spending many, many, many weeks, months, um, you know, in the case of the corporate campus, we had a, a working board that would meet and it would be transportation planners and architects and, you know, various other people in the in the field, just like, what about this? This is what we're seeing. What about this? And just like constantly kind of discussing and honing and refining that before making <coughs> recommendations. So it's, it's, it's much more deliberate. Right. Then, um, you know, than me like mouthing off. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Is there, is there a, like an overlap or a um, I'm, I'm very curious about the kind of threads between these, you know, are you doing kind of deep research on a certain policy or you're asked by a publication to uh, write a more kind of journalistic story and then that feeds into an opinion piece or does an opinion piece come out of some policy that you're researching? Like how do those things, do they all fit together for you? I think they definitely overlap. I mean, I had been writing a ton about, um, offices and office mm. design, workplace design for all kinds of people, for Wired, for Gensler, for Steelcase, just like I had, I was in deep <laughs> yeah. Every, on everything from, you know, the cubicle to, you know, working on video to, um, I even did a few pieces um, for the Times on, you know, kind of examining the, the kind of the origins of open plan and how good or bad that was. And um, so when the corporate campus work came at Spur, I was like, Oh, I've been, I've been in deep on this for a long time um, from mm-hmm. a slightly different perspective that completely related. I mean, just knowing that, um, you know, Facebook is in the old sun microsystems yep. campus and they have twice as many employees in the same amount of space. And so oh, that becomes both a land use issue, but it's very much an interiors issue, right? So right. why it doesn't necessarily weigh in, like interior, interior architecture is right. not right. a policy issue, but in this case, it's it's both of those things. Because you put twice as many people in the same building, right? and that has um, you know, serious implications for parking and transit and services and all that kind of stuff. So, so that was, I definitely had a lot of background there before starting on the corporate campus report. Um, I'd also written quite a lot about Starkitects and until, mm. the, until really the foster Apple headquarters, yeah, companies weren't really hiring arch- like architects of, you know, like famous architects right. to design buildings. So, and, so looking at that, you know, whether it was Gary's Facebook building or whatever it is, like that was definitely a shift also. And I think I've written, I, I wrote a Facebook piece kind of saying like, oh, Facebook is so radical and innovative. Like, why did they pick like one of the most established architects right, <laughs> right. in the world to design their campus? Like, why not some 25 year old, like, someone that no one ever heard of? And I'm always kind of interested in, in, in that too. So yeah, I think that it's great to be able to look at, um, an issue from all these different kind of angles and perspectives. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting, especially with regards to the campus where it, it did seem like it kind of came out of nowhere where suddenly, you know, Apple, I think Apple had Norman Foster. That was kind of like the first one. And then Facebook had Frank Gehry. And then shortly after, like within months, it seemed like Google then had Bjarke Ingels. And now it's, you know, all of these companies are hiring, uh, you know, the biggest, most popular architects that they can, it seems like. Um, yeah. I'm, I, I have just a couple kind of quick questions to start to wrap this up and kind of going off of, of what you're just talking about, uh, something that, that strikes me about your work and everything from those opinion pieces to the pieces you write for other publications to spur is that there's 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 very clearly is a point of view. There is a sort of kind of critical lens that you're putting on on these subjects. And I'm I'm curious kind of what you see as the role of the critic in writing about quote unquote design, whether that is kind of objects and artifacts or, or typefaces or buildings and, and even infrastructure and, and streets. How, how, how does the critic kind of fit in that relationship between the policymakers and the builders and the public? I think that um, I'm really worried about the state of journalism, as is everybody. But I think the role of the critic is a really important one. And I'm really concerned that, you know, people say like, well, what's, you know, what's the challenge for design criticism or any kind of criticism? I'm like, money. There's no way to get paid for this work. Right. Um, there's what, five, the, the writers that you mentioned, Alexandra and Alyssa, you know, people I've known forever, like, there's like 10 of us, right? Right. right. That, you know, get paid any money to do this and not that much money, frankly. Um, and it does affect what's done and what's built. And I think there's less, the, the, the misleading thing about the web is it gives the appearance that there's so much and there's, right. Yeah. But because it's so fragmented, there aren't enough strong voices with a big enough of a platform to affect the change that I think needs to happen. Oh, you know, if it's just me ranting about um, Internet of Things, and it's not just me, but, but let's say it is just me and a couple other people, like, that's not enough. Right. Really, you know, to really shift the needle. If it's just if it's just Alyssa saying, you know, walkability is important, that's not enough. So um, I worry a lot about that, that that um, it's not valued and, and there isn't enough of it. And it's not that there aren't people writing about it, but if people are writing about it on, you know, a thousand different websites that get a small amount of people, it's helpful. But it's that's but interesting. I, I, I still I still worry that um, is that enough to force policy? So I think we get a lot of fragmented change as opposed to any kind of holistic change. I mean, uh, there's 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 so, there's so many battles to to wage, and there's there's so much to comment on and and, and think about and. Um, that I, you know, there's been some interesting studies about um, how local newspapers uh, help cities be more efficient and result in less, um, you know, graft and, and uh, mm -hmm. scandal, right? If they have a, right. a paper calling them out. Um, I would just, I think you could just apply that same thing to criticism. It's like, if yeah. there's if there's not that rigor, if there's no one commenting on it, um, then I think that maybe some trends get away. Um, I wish there were more people writing about Internet of Things and the problems there. I wish there were more <laughs> people writing about how sustainability is, is all but absent, I think, in almost all design. Yeah, just yeah. Now. 
um, which is which is massive, you know, <laughs> that, that no one's really saying anything about that. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I think, I think we're in a bad, we're in a bad state. It's not that there aren't smart, there are so many smart people um, writing about this stuff, but if they're only writing about it in a way that people who already agree with them are learning about it, then. Yeah, that's, I've never thought about it that way. I think you're exactly right. I mean, uh, I'll get, so the woman, uh, Kate Wagner, who writes, oh yeah. I mean, she's super, super smart and she's, she's managed to get herself, um, a pretty big audience by sheer force of will, you know, <laughs> but do people who love McMansions, like, like, like there's a limit right, to, right. to, to what she's going to be able to affect. I think a lot of her audience is people who, um, just love what she's doing, which is great. But, and, and she's, she can write some really important criticism. It would be great if she had a bigger platform to do that. And there's a lot of people like that, that it would be better if they had even, that they could reach even more people. And, and the even of the few remaining publications left, um, don't have design critics, don't, yeah. you know, yeah. you know, in my days at Dwell, we had the budget to send people around the world and, you know, right. Pay writers to go places and stuff like that and really have expensive coverage and like all that stuff is, um, is not an option anymore. So yeah, yeah. I think it does, I think it does affect, um, how the work goes. Like, I don't know where there's very few places for architects to promote their work right uh, right now. And, and so I, it's concerning. Yeah. My last question is kind of what are, you know, we talked about how, how your, your kind of interest or your, your subject matter has grown and expanded. What are, and you've talked about a bunch of things, throughout what are the things that you're really thinking about right now or what are the next things you're interested in writing about or you're spending your time researching you know i've been writing a lot about public space and streets and i'm thinking a lot about those issues i just got a new book in from uh, eric klinenberg on social infrastructure and mm. um i somewhere in there i think it's probably an essay about um the designing out of human interaction, um, oh, which, which other places might not be experiencing to the extent that San Francisco is experiencing it. But, mm -hmm. um, um, and then really interesting. I've been doing a lot on, uh, autonomous vehicles and, right. yeah, uh, you know, continuing to see where that goes. I'm teaching a class on uh, real estate development right now for a new master's program. Oh, at cool. So, so how all of these issues come to play in the built environment is, Oh, that's great. I love that. I love that, that you're, um, you know, even kind of like thinking about it in a classroom setting too. Yeah. I mean, I think I always have, um, behind all the writing I do is, is, is always this thread of advocacy and, right. you know, I'd love to not just write about it, but have people be able to kind of act on this stuff. And so teaching it then makes me feel like, Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Taking like I'm, I'm taking that to someone who might actually be able to do something about it. So yeah, I love that, and I love you know the way you just kind of describe that is exactly what I've always liked about your your work and why I'm such a fan. Uh, and I thought this you know thank you so much for for talking to me. We I love kind of hearing about your work and kind of how you think about it, and thought this was just a great conversation. So thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. This episode was recorded on July 31st, 2018. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.